Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Science and Society. Recorded in 1999, Gerald Holton, Mallinckrodt Professor of Physics at Harvard University, and Nicholas Blomgarten, Professor Emeritus at Harvard University and 1981 Nobel Prize winner in physics, discuss how science affects society and vice versa. Listen now and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Well, it's very pleasant to see you again. Last time, Nico, that I saw you, you were in a magnificent procession at the American Physical Society just recently with some 40 or 50 other Nobelists that had come to celebrate 100 years of uh, grand physics from X-rays to today. Uh, and it is, it has been, of course, a wonderful century in which Great things have happened in science and their effect on society. And you have played a role in both the great physics and the effect on society. And I think you should uh, tell us what uh, comes to your mind on these two topics. Well, Gerald, you are, of course, referring to the 100th anniversary of the American Physical Society, which was founded in 1899. And, uh, it was really marvelous to see how flourishing our field is. Uh, the American Physical Society has 44,000 members. Uh, and at that meeting, there were 10,000 physicists participating. Yes. And uh, there was an awful lot of interesting uh, stuff going on. One, of course, could only hear a very small fraction of it. Uh, but it really has been a privilege uh, for both of us uh, to have lived in the 20th century, and uh, our careers uh, were predominantly in the second half of this century. Uh, then looking back, uh, I started, I came to Harvard uh, as a graduate student in 46, and had the good luck to become the first graduate student, thesis research student of uh, uh, Edward Purcell a Nobelist who uh, uh, got the prize in 1952. He shared it with Felix Bloch for nuclear magnetic resonance in condensed matter. Now, at that time, I was in 46, I was just interested in, in the physical principles of this uh, nuclear magnetic resonance. And in the way that uh, little nuclear magnets uh, orient themselves in a magnetic field and which time it takes. Uh, these times uh, are called relaxation times. And in my thesis, I measured the relaxation times T1 and T2 of protons, which are the nuclei of uh, hydrogen and occur in, in water and, and in all living matter and also in most dead matter, like ice and so on. <laughs> uh, and I measured these times. And I also found an explanation of why they had the magnitude of uh, fractions of a second to several seconds to even hours. But little did either my mentor, Purcell, or I anticipate that th three decades later, these relaxation times would form the basis 
on which MRI became possible. As you know, MRI stands for magnetic resonance imaging. Yes. People, uh, uh, the medical profession, carefully left out the word nuclear because people always associate uh, nuclear with nuclear energy and danger. However, in magnetism, the nuclear little magnets are the weakest <laughs> and the most innocuous <laughs> uh, particles of magnetism one can imagine. Uh, but uh, MRI has become a diagnostic tool in medicine that is uh, almost becoming equal to X-ray uh, pictures yes. and uh, X-ray tomography and MRI, MRI tomography are very supplemental because X-rays can see uh, bones and heavy elements, whereas MRI can see... Uh, the structure of the brain and tumors in the brain uh, because of the differentiation of these nuclear relaxation times in different cells. So that was the first uh, occupation of me in physics. Then I switched over to, to lasers and optics. And uh, I studied the properties of matter at very high light intensity as these uh, occur in uh, laser beams. And again, to my surprise, <laughs> really, there are now these many applications uh, which are based on the properties of matter at high light intensities. I may mention optical communications. When we now uh, pick up the telephone and talk to somebody in Europe or Japan or, yeah. or wherever, uh, these signals are carried uh, through optical fibers. And optical communications is one very big uh, industry at the moment and still expanding and literally uniting the world. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't go on to mention all the other applications. Lasers are used in medicine and surgery. They are used in uh, manufacture of new materials. They are used in uh, rather mundane things uh, like uh, construction of buildings, verticals and horizontals, laying pipelines. And the most familiar to all is checkout at the supermarket counters. But uh, one of the main things uh, in my career is this direct connection between basic physical science and these practical applications. Well, you know, you also have, however, taken the chance or the duty uh, as a chair of an important committee to inform the policymakers of uh, where science tells us proper policy leads. Do you want to make a short remark about that? Well, I think you are referring to a study which was known as uh, the uh, Directed Energy Weapons Program uh, of the Strategic Defense Initiative under President Reagan. 
Yes, sir. That's right. Well, the by and large, most scientists were uh, very critical uh, after President Reagan announced his plan to start a strategic defense against a, a, a massive uh, launch of nuclear missiles from the Soviet Union, which was then our arch enemy. And uh, most scientists had a gut feeling that uh, this was not technological feasible at that time. But there was no proof of that, and somebody had to study it. And the difficulty was there to uh, get an objective, purely scientific, non-political viewpoint. And the APS, uh, the American Physical Society, uh, decided to start such a project. And they asked me to chair it, mostly because I had never gone public on my political beliefs on, on the issue. Well, I, I didn't feel competent to do it all by myself, so I invited a colleague, Kumar Patel, then at the AT&T Bell Laboratories to co-chair this yes. se session. And we got 14 members, none of whom had a publicly known political position, but informally it was known that they spent the whole range uh, of uh, very liberal to very conservative viewpoints. And uh, our task was to uh, study the issue, and for that we had to have access to uh, highly classified information. So all of us had uh, top secret security clearance, yeah. so that when we came out with an unclassified report on the findings, nobody could say, you don't know what you're talking about. If you knew uh, the classified information, your conclusions would have been different. Yes. And uh, nobody could uh, reproach us on that. So when our report came out, I really believe it had a profound influence because then it was decided that indeed uh, uh, we were still in the Cold War with Russia, but uh, this strategic defense by putting heavy mirrors and heavy lasers uh, in uh, outer space wouldn't, would not be feasible. Yes. And our conclusions uh, are still valid even uh, 12 years after the report was written. Each year, they become more valid and true. Now, you used the word objective. Yeah. And that brings me to ask you this. You live in a world of experiment and observation. And uh, you believe that there is a kind of an external world that has reality. But uh, not everybody in uh, America, France, or England, and other places, even Soviet, ex-Soviet Union, agrees with it because there are people who would say, for example, this is a Baconian project. Francis Bacon said how one should observe, and in particular, 
as one or two of the very great gurus of the anti-science movement put it, he taught us that the way to deal with nature is to torture nature. This turns out, by the way, a mistranslation. He said vexation, use the Latin word for vexation, yeah. that vexation of nature means that you shouldn't just look at what nature does by itself, but you should trouble nature in a laboratory setting to give away more secrets. Yes. At the end of which, as he said, you will become so enamored of the result that you will become the slave of nature. Going a little too far, I think. But still, uh, there are these people who believe you are torturing nature. And secondly, that uh, you uh, cannot be objective anyway, because objectivity does not exist. It is socially constructed. So how would you answer to them? Well, let me come back to our committee, which had politically and emotionally very divided viewpoints. And sometimes we discussed an issue for many hours and didn't seem to be able to come to an agreement. Yes. And then I noted that there were two possibilities. Either what we were discussing was not science but politics, and then it didn't belong in the report, so we left the matter out, or else we had a valid scientific point, but the debate was about the wording, and one had to find a politically neutral wording mm. so that it became a true scientific statement. And as I said, these 14 people with very different emotional and political background were able to come with a report they could all subscribe to and sign it without any minority opinion. Yeah. And that is what science is about. You look at an issue from all angles and all viewpoints, but there is such a thing uh, that it is not a matter of individual judgment, uh, but there is such a thing as uh, uh, facts that everybody can agree on. How would you then explain the existence in academia particularly, and in America particularly, of a considerable amount of uh, controversy and among the people who are in social studies, yeah. or the French philosophers, for example, who uh, are in the ascendance, uh, at least in Europe, and now have reached a plateau, perhaps, in their renown in America, uh, who would challenge that you were, as it were, conditioned by the social environment, and this is almost a Marxist position, rather than by any reality. Uh, as uh, Hessen proposed in his speech in 1930s, uh, visiting Russian in London, that Newton's Principia, for example, was not about the objective world at all. It was in the service of uh, British capitalism to show how better navigate and how to do trade better. And uh, so changing the focus entirely from what a Newtonian or a Nico Bloombergen does to what society has imprinted on you to do. So you might want to respond whether this group has much to say, or perhaps you have examples of the sort 
that shows what it is that they say and how to respond to them. Well, I'm truly appalled by some of the statements of these post-modernists. I have here a quote, physical reality is at bottom a social and linguistic construct. Well, it's just the opposite of that. This is uh, pure nonsense. And uh, what one has to do is really be able to obtain a consensus among rationally thinking people and take all observable facts into account and insist on extending our powers of observation by utilizing new instruments just as x-rays, as radioactive mechanisms, clocks, and uh, now electron microscopes, and uh, really look at issues. And there is such a thing as a, a real world of facts. And uh, people who think as these postmodernists would never have invented the radio, television, uh, space flight, airplanes, and so on. It takes real scientists and engineers to uh, arrive at things that influence our society uh, to the core. As I mentioned, MRI in medicine, uh, optical communications, they, they don't come from postmodernist sources, <laughs> and they never will. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, a uh, progressive gathering of facts and ideas and instruments and theories, and uh, that leads me to come to a point, which is, I think, very important in the middle of your own thoughts, namely that science is an evolutionary project. It may, uh, in time, uh, be having its ups and downs, its uh, periods where one despairs of the next uh, answer. Uh, science, as uh, my colleague uh, uh, Gould said the other day, 99% uh, of the day you uh, find yourself doing things which are either wrong or meaningless, and at the end of the day, he still has to clean out the mouse cage. But uh, that means one has to be an optimist, because by and by, things do accumulate. And I think that uh, your uh, remarks just now show the evolutionary view about science, rather than some waiting for a revolution that then is being undone by the next revolution, from one crisis to another, never progressing anywhere. And I think that in your own work, you probably have seen the evolutionary aspect of science. That's right. Uh, I don't believe in uh, scientific revolutions. They are evolutions. Uh, uh, for instance, the, the concept of uh, special and general relativity of Einstein uh, didn't invalidate uh, everything that Newton had said. It just added to it and extended the validity of these considerations to uh, uh, particles moving at uh, 
speeds appro approaching the speed of light. Uh, but they didn't invalidate Newton whatsoever. It was not a revolution, it was an evolution. Yes. And in the same way, a very important thing is quantum mechanics uh, is an evolution of, of classical mechanics. Well, when I watch you talking about science and my other colleagues, and I feel it myself, there is, I would dare to say, an enchantment about doing the work. Now, there is, of course, one branch of the anti-science movement, which uh, already the great sociologist Max Weber yeah. identified as being upset about the so-called disenchantment of nature owing to science. In other words, when the rainbow is explained, it is less enchanting. When science understands in detail how baseball behaves, why it curves, for example, and why it goes into the particular direction and the momentum it has, that the charm has gone. And the British poets at the beginning of the 19th century were also similarly upset by the disenchantment that comes with knowing more science. But I see that it is possible, when one looks at you, for example, to still be enchanted by nature. That's right. Uh, I, I think baseball is more interesting when you know that it's the stitching on the ball <laughs> and the uh, uh, rotating motion that the pitcher gives it uh, that leads to these effects. Uh, I, I think uh, understanding uh, these phenomena in nature uh, is important. And, uh, then you really understand them and get uh, nice, uh, concise mathematical descriptions of them. It enhances the value of these phenomena rather than takes away from it. So how shall we deal with those? And I'm thinking here of uh, very respectable people like uh, Václav Havel, who was president of the Czechoslovak Republic and is still president of part of that country, who a wonderful human being, a great yeah. uh, resistance fighter him. and anti-communist, a uh, man who uh, is a splendid poet and dramatist, and yet he has written over and over again that science is a, an illness of society. For example, he believes and has written that rationality in the scientific point of view has led to communism and fascism. And that uh, science, and I'm now quoting, has killed God and put itself on its throne and on His throne. And uh, to him, uh, and he has many followers, uh, even I must say, for a time in the U.S. Congress, when uh, a representative in charge of our science committee uh, believed this and said in print that science creates more problems and leads away from values by only projecting uh, realities and dealing only with uh, external externalities. How shall one respond to people like that? Because they, they come with good feelings. They are not stupid people. We are leaving aside those who are stupid for today. We are talking about policymakers. And therefore, we must uh, try to help them to understand what it is that really is remaining with our enchantment as well 
that we have not driven God from his throne at all. But as Einstein said, the closer we come to understand the mysteries, the more amazing it is that God allows us to do it. Yes, uh, this is a very difficult and clearly a sensitive issue. Now, I uh, always ask uh, if the word God is mentioned, please give me a definition of God. And uh, students sometimes ask me when I, after a lecture, whether I believe in God, whether that would change the scientific content of my talk. And, and I challenge them and say, if you define God for me, I will answer the question. And then they, nobody knows how to define it. And then they say something like, well, God is God. And then I say, I agree with that statement. Uh, God, in my opinion, is uh, a creation of the human mind. And we are not created by God, mm -hmm. just the other way around. Uh, your former countryman, Spinoza, would add to this that uh, there is a deity in the intellectual structure of the universe. And many scientists, like Einstein and others, have uh, agreed with Spinoza on that. But one must remember that Spinoza was excommunicated from that point of view. Uh, I'd like to point out to Havel that probably uh, more suffering and wars started because uh, of uh, people believing in different gods and having different conceptions uh, of God uh, than because of uh, scientific developments. You know, this uh, leads me to talk about uh, Max Planck for a moment, because he was the son of a uh, pastor, I believe, yeah. and very, uh, very pious himself. And he, of course, gave us, at the very beginning of this century, a key to the new ideas in quantum ideas, the idea of the Planck's constant, yeah. and uh, particularly of quantum ideas that came out of it. And he always was very proud of the Planck constant as being an, an icon of the absolute. And he said, even extraterrestrials, if they ever will be found, and if they measure Planck's constant, they'll come to the same numbers that we do. It is a universal and therefore an absolute thing. It is spread throughout the universe. And uh, this enchanted him very much. And in fact, it enchants me as well to think that uh, the constants of nature, to check just that part of physics, which we are all dealing with every day, the speed of light, the charge on the electron, the mass of the electron, things like that, measured in many cases to decimal places down to one part in a billion and better than that. Better than that. Yeah. Uh, that will be found regardless of the social conditions. It'll be found the same in Kuala Lumpur and in Tokyo and in Chicago by people who grow up under completely different social conditions. And therefore, coming back to social construction, I wonder how a social constructivist would deal with the idea that since all our ideas come from our own immediate surrounding, uh, that nevertheless, the scientific findings are spread throughout the universe, uh, 
and the other the same. And that, of course, I think should be regarded by them as a sort of a disproof. That's, I, I agree with you there. I, what impresses me most uh, is the, the recent developments in, in, in astrophysics and cosmology and their connection uh, of the very large, uh, of the scale of our universe with the very small scale of the subnuclear particles. Yes. And um, uh, our uh, colleague Steve Weinberg is in search of what he calls a final theory, yes. which uh, brings all these uh, concepts uh, to uh, a unified whole. Yes. On the other hand, that type of thing is so far away from our everyday uh, life on Earth and of the immediate physical observations one can make. Uh, although there are interesting cosmological observations, uh, to put everything together into one unified theory is uh, very far removed at the moment from our uh, physical capabilities of observation. So in that sense, you might say that is at the moment still a linguistic construct. Mm. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. The, the other big thing, of course, is the, the uh, origin of living matter and of life. And clearly one of the greatest uh, uh, contributions of the century is the discovery uh, of the helical structure of DNA by Crick and Watson. Yes. And maybe if I had to start as a student now, there might be more promise and I might choose uh, biophysics. Uh, rather than uh, the physics pass I have taken. <laughs> you see it, a turn. There is this uh, ebb and flow uh, yes. uh, among different sciences as well. That's right. Uh, let me take up uh, this remark about Steve, uh, Steven Weinberg, who we all agree is one of the most brilliant scientists and uh, very thoughtful spokesperson on the subject of science, society, philosophy, and the like. His book, uh, The Dream of Final Theory, yeah. with the accent on dream, is uh, really a fascinating book. Uh, we all agree. He has written in one of his essays on why should we have cyclotrons, what's the use of cyclotrons, some years ago, that he believed that one has to think about the end of science. Um, he believed that eventually, maybe centuries from now, one will have a theory of everything in the physical sciences. One might asymptotically approach such a thing with a very long time scale. Um, but he added that in the meantime, new sciences will come out, just as DNA suddenly came out and founded completely new sciences with new buildings on every campus devoted to them. And that uh, the structure of human thought itself about what science should be doing may change over that long period, so that there will be never an end to problems for scientists. They may want to go now into biophysics, for example, uh, instead of uh, going to nonlinear optics. Uh, but uh, in the long run, they may go into things which are difficult even to dream about now. Because if one, again, thinks from 1900 to today, almost everything we are doing today would have been undreamt of 
in 1900. That's right. Uh, one of the biggest things that affects our society is, of course, the computer and the internet. And that is another story that started with physics of the solid state, semiconductors, mm -hmm. etc. And uh, there's an awful lot of uh, still present activity. A new frontier is the mesoscopic physics that is studying the size uh, of uh, particles which are consisting of several thousand atoms, yes. several hundred atoms, but are not as big that you can see them under a microscope. Yes. And uh, that is another field that has just emerged in, in the last 20 years. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I believe what Steve Weinberg says is right. I cannot see that far in the future what it will be a few hundred years from now. Right. But uh, I, I, I think it is an endless frontier. That is, of course, the uh, very wonderful uh, title, Science, the Endless Frontier of Vannevar Bush, which helped very much to bring science and government together in the funding of it uh, uh, at the end of World War II and which uh, now is being renegotiated, as it were. Yeah. But let me uh, say that, uh, being devil's advocate, there are people out there who say, we have already reached the end of science. There is a book now which sells a lot of copies by a man called John Horgan, um, called The End of Science, in which he declares, as a journalist, uh, with all the authority that the journalist has in all the sciences, that. Um, we have already reached the end because all the important things like quantum theory, relativity, DNA, and the like, they have already been found. And from now on, we'll sort of work on the fringes of things. It's a vastly successful book. And it reminds me of uh, Oswald Spengler around 1918, who said very similarly that science is now falling on its own sword. It is coming to an end together with Western civilization as a whole. Uh, that was uh, Spengler's idea, for which he actually gave a date, the year 2000. Uh, so there are these people out there who believe that uh, science is ending. What shall we do for them? I should imagine, first of all, we should try to educate them, because these are our students, or we're our students. Well, uh, everybody can see, uh, as you could see at the 100th anniversary of the American Physical Society, that the field is far, far from dead. In fact, that there are all kinds of new problems uh, uh, being studied and are needed to be studied to make further improvements uh, uh, in our lives possible. But there are, are many, many projects proposed to understand more about uh, the structure of the universe and about the structure of uh, subatomic particles but um, in many other directions as well. Uh, uh, as you look at the, at the vitality of uh, scientific uh, organizations, uh, it's, it's ample proof that uh, that statement is not correct. Yes. Uh, I'd like to ask, though, about one aspect for which I think the scientists themselves may be responsible. You met at that occasion, I believe, with students and teachers. Yeah. Uh, and so did the other Nobelists at the time that were there. Uh, it upsets many of us that only 30% of the 
of the colleges in the United States require a single hour of science or mathematics for graduation. And this on top of very inadequate uh, uh, education in, in the sciences in, in the high school. We are turning out, I think, a bifurcated kind of a society in which there are at the top a relatively small level, a thin level, of well-educated people, and the others who are more and more becoming scientifically illiterate without being bothered by that, and yet requiring a place at the table where decisions are made in the democracy. I think this is an explosive issue, because after all, as you did in your chairing that committee, many of the um, uh, decisions made, 50% of the decisions in Congress have a technological component. And a president can no longer live without a science advisor, even if they try. So I think that the scientists who help run the universities and those who help supervise education below it, I think they ought to busy themselves more than they have done, not sit back and be so happy in their own work because there is flourishing a banality underneath, which I think is politically dangerous. Well, I uh, share your concerns, and so does the American Physical Society. There is now a committee on science and public policy, and they are worried and are trying to establish more contacts with members of Congress. And uh, I also shared a fundraising campaign the first fundraising campaign in the, its hundred ye years of existence. And uh, that money was going to be devoted to improve science education at the pre-college level, K through 12. Uh -huh. and, and we raised uh, f $5 million for that purpose. And uh, so uh, uh, I would say that uh, our colleagues uh, and the uh, leaders of the American Physical Society become very much aware, increasingly aware, of both the needs of uh, pre-college education in the sciences and of establishing better ties with members of Congress. In that last connection, the number of scientists in Congress doubled during the past year because we had only one congressman Vernon Ayles, and now we have two, because Rush Holt, congressman from New Jersey, has also a PhD in physics. And if we extrapolate that <laughs> and get a doubling every year, then the whole Congress will be made of scientists in the year 1930. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be a disaster Twin of another 2030, <laughs> sorry. Yes, would be a disaster <laughs> of another kind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, I really think that uh, uh, we should have more uh, lawyers and politicians who have had some grounding in the sciences yes. uh, in the general education. It, uh, it does concern me most when the ignorance doesn't just uh, play out by people who believe in psychics and palmistry and uh, all kinds of UFOs and nonsense of this sort. Uh, that, I think, is sort of built into the into the entropy, as we would say, in yeah. physics of uh, humanity. One cannot yeah. try to stamp that out, and one has to yeah. 
try to educate people uh, and argue with them. But what really, where the real danger is, uh, at its most, uh, at its most obvious, and its deepest is when politically powerful people link up with anti-scientific ideas. Yeah. This has happened, for example, in Maoist China, when Western science was declared uh, outlawed. Yeah, well, the, uh, the cultural revolution. The was cultural disastrous. revolution was a disaster. Uh, this happened in the USSR, where relativity, quantum physics, and Lysenko, yeah. above all, in genetics. Uh, where uh, uh, where uh, uh, the problem, and uh, it happened in the United States too, when uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, who believed in astrology, uh, set especially uh, Nancy Reagan, his wife, did, his wife, and, and, and he uh, went along with her. Yes, and many of the decisions on when to do things and yeah. whether to do things were made by astrologers. Yeah. Uh, he also believed, by the way, in UFOs and in creationism, yeah. as well as into the apocalyptic end of things. Now, when you marry non-scientific or anti-scientific or just irresponsible kinds of views concerning science to political power, as was done in Nazi Germany, that is a disaster. Yeah. And that, I think, is the, the worst thing that can happen. For example, in Nazi Germany, uh, there is now, among the postmodernists, by the way, an attempt to show that uh, the Holocaust was caused by science. A book by Bormann in this, namely, Rationality of Rounding Up People According to Addresses and so on, kept in an orderly way, trains running, etc. All of that was scientific. Uh, so the genocide was essentially uh, made possible. An utter idiocy of this. Yeah. When you look at the details, the very opposite was the case. Because all the top people, from Hitler and Himmler down, believed in the world ice theory. And it may come as news to you, but I've studied this as a historian of science, as half of my life. Uh, the world ice, ice theory went as follows, that in the beginning there were, there were a very hot body, the sun, and a very cold object made of ice. The two clashed. Out of it came a spray of icicles, some of which made up the Milky Way to this day, that's they thought. And the rest came down as seeds from which the Aryan race, in its purity and its Nord Nordic connection, arose. And uh, that all other beings, which didn't arise from this pure Aryan kind of seed that came down with the ice, ought to be removed. So the idea that they had, is, which came back, came from a man who published this in 1912, a man called Herbinger, in which they forced on all the schools, through their propaganda minister and through their education minister, this was part of their kind of science. It was a purely anti-scientific kind of a movement, only typical of many of the sort that, that were then current. Well, that's what I fear, and I think you probably share it too, that when leadership, even when, not of these extreme cases, but even in our democracies, begins to, and leadership in, among the clergy, among universities, 
among our political uh, leaders, if they are not properly tuned in on the powers and shortcomings of science, honestly on both of those, that I think democracy has something to worry about. I agree with that. I don't know how to solve that. Uh, I don't think we face this problem yet. Uh, we certainly came through the Reagan presidency uh, without uh, getting these difficulties developing into Nazism or uh, oh, that's communism. Quite right. uh, so we have we have uh, we are protected. The, the point from that. of science is that it is universal. There is no uh, science uh, uh, that can be labeled by race or, or religion or uh, any other feature of human difference. Well, among your colleagues, you have had colleagues of all types. Yeah. of humanity, background, exactly. every kind of background. You have uh, seen the worst and the best of, of uh, 20th century history yourself uh, in, in your own life. And scientists come in all colors, e emotionally and uh, uh, politically, etc., etc. Well, but, but they can still communicate with a common language yes. and, and agree on basic facts. And uh, you have also seen the various ways in which they go about their science, that there are all kinds of different styles. During the nascent phase, during the creative phase, some people are deeply attached to certain presuppositions, I call them themata. Others are uh, attached to completely different uh, ideas. Uh, and yet, in the end, the consensus is being reached. And I'd like to ask you what, finally, you would like to tell us that, in a sense, summarizes some of the ideas which we have been talking about. Well, that is a <laughs> difficult question. And I, I would just like to come back to uh, uh, my own uh, experience of this uh, relationship between the quest of scientists to find new things yes. and observe situations from all possible angles. And out of that uh, gets born not only new insights, but also very real new technological developments. And in my personal life, MRI and optical communications were two of those. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.